0: If you're a parent uh, of special needs children, one of the great sources of inspiration is other parents uh, with special needs, uh, because they are the people that you seek out. They are the ones who give
1: you counsel. They give you encouragement. Satya Nadella is the third CEO of Microsoft. He's also a husband and father of special needs kids. He's an immigrant, and he's pretty close to doing something that, until he took the job just over three and a half years ago, most people in tech, heck, most people at Microsoft, Thought was impossible. That near-impossible task is a cultural revival of a once-dominant tech giant that was losing its grip on its soul. Under Nadella's leadership, morale is up, and so is product quality and the stock price. The question is whether all that can stick. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly what I want you to do, subscribe, so this gets to you automatically. One less thing to think about. Satya sat down with me at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square in New York, where he stopped through to promote his new book, Hit Refresh, about the revival he's attempting at Microsoft. About half of the conversation you're about to hear was live on CNBC's Squawk Alley, which I co-anchor. Half of it we saved for the podcast. All of it gives you a fresh look at one of the most influential leaders in the world today who's engineering a cultural rebirth few thought possible while also being a dad who faces some unique challenges helping his kids reach their full potential. Here's Satya Nadella. Satya, you get pretty personal in the book in a number of places. One, when it comes to your mother and the choice that she made um, to give up her teaching career and stay home and and the impact that had on you. Tell me, how does that frame the way you look at the challenges of gender equity in the workplace that Microsoft and other businesses are facing right now? In fact, I've started to
0: reflect a lot more about the changes or the trade-offs that my mother had to make um, as I think about. Uh, the women at Microsoft and some of the trade-offs and the struggles uh, that they have in balancing uh, their family and work. Uh, There's this phenomena um, where uh, you have the early progress and then you have a child, you take some time off and you come back. Um, That's one of those very crucial times uh, when the organization has to support you uh, the managers that you work for have to support you uh, to get you back uh, and thriving. And when I look back, I think that was the crucial thing that was missing for my mother. Hmm. Uh, when she took time off uh, to, you know, have, you know, my, uh, during my birth, my sister's birth, um, she wanted to get back. Uh, but that is when I guess the institutions didn't support her. Uh, So that weighs on me. Uh, Are we in the company? In some sense now as a CEO, one of the things that I'm constantly learning is what's my responsibility? Uh, What can I do with any insight I have here? And then look at what's the onboarding program uh, Mm -hmm. that we have for someone who's coming back? Uh, Are we in fact training our leaders and managers that when someone who's sort of taken a a bit of time off and comes back, here is how you can in fact successfully bring them back in. Those are the things that I think are super important because unless and until to me, having diversity is existential. I mean, there's no way we can be successful uh, serving the world if we don't represent the world, whether it's gender or ethnic. Uh, so you, that-
1: you have an interesting way in the book of bringing up the, the different perspectives that certain executives and engineers at Microsoft have brought to that. Um, you know, one of the main researchers on HoloLens who uh, I believe is from Brazil that's right, and worked on Vista and kind of the perspective that he brought. Peggy Johnson, you talk about a lot and, and her perspective coming in. You know, I remember when you were first coming on as CEO, you and I had talked a couple of times when you were in uh, senior management before becoming CEO. But you have this moment that you talk about in the book, too, at Grace Hopper, yep. where you you phrased your advice to women on asking for raises in a way that I guess was pretty regrettable. Yep. And... You had said, kind of framing that up as you were becoming CEO, that a lot of people at Microsoft didn't think that an internal candidate could turn the culture around as it was. As you reflect back now on that moment, you've gotten rave reviews on how you handled that, by the way, and kind of admitting um, where Microsoft needed to go and how you misspoke. How, How much pressure was there on you at that moment? when people didn't know who you were to begin with, to say, no, wait, wait, that's not what I meant to say. I
0: mean, it's, you know, when I look back, uh, I you know, as I've written in the book, it is a pretty ridiculous answer to give because I was basically answering the question literally based on my past experience without understanding the broader context of what is expected of a CEO of a large corporation in a women's conference Uh, In fact, one of the best teaching moments for me was uh, talking to Peggy Johnson, talking to Amy Hood, talking to Kathleen Hogan, senior women doing amazing things at Microsoft. Uh, And they said, you know, this is what happened to me in my career. So in some sense, I perhaps the fact that I screwed up that answer was a gift because I got so much more deeper understanding of what it takes as a leader to create a system
1: that then constantly pushes to work. But do you ever freak out? Do you ever just slap your head and look at the ceiling and go, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? Or, or have the pressures that life has put, brought to bear on you over the years, just brought you uh, to the point where you don't have that issue? I, mean, I imagine that might've been one of those times. It's early in your tenure and boom.
0: No, I mean, I think you know, the way I look at it is that it's the pressure is on every day right? because, in some sense, that's what's exciting too right? uh, about these jobs, which is uh, what I've at least learned is I'm not perfect. Uh, but one thing that I'm open to and I want to be open to is learning from my mistakes. Uh, that second part is what helps. Uh, in fact, one of the cultural memes we talk a lot about uh, is this growth mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of growth mindset is to, in some sense, confront your fixed mindset. Uh, it's not to say, oh, I'm great. Uh, I've got this ability to continuously grow. The only, it's the
1: opposite, right? It's the exact
0: opposite. <laughs> you have to, in fact, every day admit to yourself all the places where you could have done better. Uh, and the more successful you are at it, the, the chances are that you will be able to do, really improve.
1: You also talk about what you've learned as a father from the experiences of your kids. Um, your son, Zane, has had challenges with cerebral palsy. And it taught you empathy. You say when you had your entrance interview into Microsoft, mm-hmm. there was an empathy question that you flunked. The question was something like, uh, you're walking down the street, you see a crying baby in the street, what do you do? And your answer was, call 911.
0: That's correct. <laughs> you, know, that's, you know, one of the things I've learned is it's not just about, oh, you're born empathetic. If anything, I think life's experiences help you gain more insight. And more deeper empathy for more people. In fact, if anything, that's what happens. Um, And so the question is, how are you using those moments? You know, that interview question clearly made me think. I mean, I was 25 years old. Uh, I had not, you know, I was not even married at that point. So I didn't have that empathy for what does one actually do when a child is crying on the road? You actually hug them or you don't try and look for a phone. (laughs) Uh, Same thing with Zane. In fact, I must say, I learned from my wife what came so much more naturally to her. when was born, which is to care for him, uh, is something that it took me a while, because it was more about, like I was first about, why did this happen to us and me? Uh, And then a few years went by, and then I realized nothing happened to me. Something happened to Zane. What's my responsibility as a father? Uh, and I think that was perhaps one of the, you know, the big hit refresh moments when I look back for me personally that is influenced. Uh, and so I think it's our life's experience that then leads into work and work's experience that leads into life. And it's one of those things where uh, it has to be lived. It can't be talked You about. mentioned
1: also one, one of your daughters had learning differences. And you were going to a school in Vancouver which is some distance away from Seattle, not too far, but it, it means you had a split family life with going to places. That I can't imagine with your schedule how you managed to do that, despite the fact that, you know, your wife is apparently Wonder Woman, which, yeah. which helps, right? So, um, as you navigated that as well, and you think about the, the challenges that families have navigating different dynamics now, what does that add? I mean, I think... To me,
0: when I look back again, would I have been able to achieve what I've achieved at work without that partnership? Uh, you, you know, said my wife's partnership was instrumental. I mean, some of the things what happened with Zane, in fact, perhaps made us more resilient and more ready to deal even with our youngest child's learning differences. We had built a community around us. We knew how to seek out help. Uh, and more importantly, we were willing to do what it takes to give her the best opportunity. Uh, so those decisions we made, even to split the family and you know, live across Vancouver and Seattle and do all of the crazy things we had to do, uh, in some sense, we didn't question ourselves. We just did it uh, because we had, perhaps by that time, developed that sense of empathy for the opportunity we needed to give her.
1: How do you decide to do that? Is that something that you come up with yourself or something that somebody else has done that you say, well, can we do that? Yeah, maybe that's a great idea. And in fact, I think it it is a
0: great question. Anyone, at least one thing I've learned is if you're a parent uh, of special needs children, one of the great sources of inspiration is other parents uh, with special needs uh, because they are the people that you seek out. They are the ones who give you counsel. They give you encouragement. Uh, That community you form and even the therapists that we work. When I think about the birthday celebration, we have for Zayn, one of the most fun things is the closest friends we now have are people who were introduced to us as various care providers for Zayn over the years. Uh, and that community has been the one that has given us the strength.
1: You talk about cricket and its influence on you as a young man. It's all you wanted to pay attention to for quite a while. And you were the equivalent of a, of a pitcher in baseball, a bowler. Correct. You tell a story that is probably the closest tied to management and, and what you got out of it, how you were having one, is it a match or a game? I'm yep. gonna screw match. all the, yep. the, the yeah. terminology up. You're having one match, you didn't have good stuff, you know, and, and you get replaced yeah. as a bowler. Um, the manager, is it, comes in? The, the captain. The captain yeah. comes in, uh, essentially does better, but then puts you back in yeah. instead of staying in the game himself. Yeah. And you say that was about. Your confidence.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thing when I think about what... Uh, and I've talked to uh, that gentleman subsequently. <laughs> uh, but it is fascinating uh, that he did that. Uh, and the fact that I was putting up ordinary trash, he replaced me, brought himself <laughs> on. He himself was a pretty good bowler. He got the breakthrough, but then he gave the ball back to me. And I went on to actually do very well in that particular game and had a pretty decent season. But the reason why he did it is because he didn't want to break my confidence. He is a school, high school captain, uh, who is thinking about his team and the composition of the team, the confidence of his players, how they can last out a season. And I said, wow, that's something that one can learn from as a leader.
1: Is that about seeing the inherent ability in a person despite the circumstances? How do you how do you decide whether that bowler needs to be replaced? or just needs a boost of confidence as a CEO?
0: I mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, in some sense, uh, one of the things that I think is you got to be able to separate out the circumstance from the performance sometimes. Uh, in that particular case, I think it was this one batsman whom I was sort of bowling thrash to. Uh, <laughs> and he realized that there were certain things that that, that batsman was doing uh, that were really not really my strengths. Hmm. Uh, and that ability to be able to separate out performance, context, past judgment ultimately, Uh, I think it's important. It doesn't mean you don't make hard calls. You do, uh, especially in sports. Uh, You bench people if they're not performing, or you trade people. And I think those are pretty hardcore calls. Uh, But at the same time, if you have someone who can in fact perform, and you believe they can perform to their potential, uh, you really need to give them a second chance. And that's how, is there no formula to it? No, there's judgment.
1: When you came in as CEO, you requested that Bill Gates spend more time at Microsoft, which struck some people, it certainly struck me, as a counterintuitive thing. Um, You know, Steve Ballmer was on the board at least for a little while. Gates was still on the board. Here are two, the the only two former CEOs of the company, generally a new CEO wants to get those guys as far away as possible. How has that worked out?
0: It's worked out fantastic. I mean, you, you gotta remember, I'm a consummate insider. I've grown up at Microsoft for 25 years. I'm a product of the company Uh, that Paul and Bill founded and Steve and Bill created. Uh, And so I'm very proud of our heritage. Uh, Definitely, I'm also a keen observer of things that we've got right, the things that we got wrong. Uh, But that said, Bill's influence is tremendous in the company. I mean, he's the founder. Uh, His ability to convene uh, anything at Microsoft and anybody at Microsoft and ensure that we are at the top of our game uh, is unparalleled. Uh, And so I wanted that. I wanted to make sure uh, that we were able to invoke uh, that, I would say, that intellectual honesty that is so amazing in him uh, so that he can show us the mirror each day and say, hey, are you better than yesterday? And that's only uniquely Bill. I wanted to make sure that that continued.
1: You managed to point out a number of things in the book that you learned from Steve Ballmer, of course, from Bill Gates as well, and it strikes me that you are at once paying homage to the things they got right and the things that you learned from them while at the same time this is about hitting refresh in a culture that needed to change. (laughs) Where did you learn that kind of depth? diplomacy because um on the one hand you're saying here are some things that got absolutely right and here are some things that went off track along the way
0: i mean quite honestly the confidence to you will do that uh i think comes from in fact observing them uh like even for example steve's last piece of advice to me was hey don't try to be like me don't try to be like bill be yourself <laughs> be bold be right that was his advice to me but i think that ability to know what you can learn, whether it's from Steve or Bill or many other leaders at Microsoft, or like Jeff Rakes or Doug Burgum or and so on, I feel that the, the leaders at Microsoft were true mentors who didn't mean to teach us that, hey, only followership of me and what I've
1: done is what's leadership. It's about you being able to follow your own path. The be yourself um, advice. Jumps out at me in the book, especially when one of the board members at Microsoft during the interview process told you effectively, you didn't seem hungry enough for the job. Got to act like you really want it. And Steve said, it's too late to be somebody else now. That's exactly correct. I mean, even in some sense,
0: I had a very important job. I was actually thrilled with the job. And they said, hey, I mean, it's not like we were sitting around thinking that Steve is going to retire. So it was a shock. Um, and the board did the right thing, which is they looked far and wide and said, hey, what do we do uh, with the search? And in that process, when they came and talked to me and they said, do you want to be CEO? I was honest. I said, only if you want me to be CEO. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and that answer, that's not what you're supposed to say right Well, i mean i, I don't know what i was supposed to say but that I was mean, the answer that i got i mean I got.
1: in the business books and it, they say you're you're supposed to be like absolutely no question i'm i'm hungry for it give it to me
0: as i write it like i you know some people ask me oh when you joined microsoft did you want to become ceo or did you have a plan to become ceo No, I did not. And not did I have a plan uh, to become CEO even the day after Steve, uh, you know, announced his retirement. So it's something that I've always felt that the job, I was never the kind of guy who said, oh, let me wait for my next job to do my best work. Uh, I always took the job I had uh, and just pour myself into it and say, wow, I'm so happy to have this and do my best work. And it
1: worked out. So how did the idea get into your head? If it wasn't the day after Steve Ballmer said that he was stepping down. Who who suggested it to you, or when did it? Maybe I'm the guy. In fact, the board,
0: uh, when they asked one day, they said, hey, do you have a point of view? Uh, I said, of course I have a point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when they asked me to even write a memo and said, just describe it. Like, What would you do if you were CEO? Uh, and, I mean, having grown up, having observed, I actually absolutely had a first-class view. In fact, most of what we have done subsequently is straight out of that memo. Uh, and so that's, I think, what uh, perhaps even gave the board confidence uh, about sort of my abilities. Uh, and it was also helpful for me to articulate it.
1: One of your other kind of counterintuitive management moves, I think, is your relationship with Kilu. Lu. Lu, yeah. Chi Lu always pronounce that wrong. My apologies, Chi, if you're listening. Um, you guys had recruited him away from Yahoo, I believe it was at the time, right? He had already left Yahoo. He had already left Yahoo. And uh, on the flight from talking to him, Steve Ballmer said to you, well, if we're going to get him, then basically he, you might, uh, Satya, I have to end up working for him, so I hope that's not a problem. And you said, sure. Why wasn't that a problem? I mean, hiring somebody above you, here you are, upwardly mobile in the organization doing a great job you're going with the ceo to interview people and you're getting leapfrogged
0: i mean it, it, this is one of the things again quite frankly um i learned from you know observing both uh, bill and steve which is if you're confident and you can go long on yourself uh because for me the opportunity to learn from chi at that point was much bigger than just trying to get the job that we were trying to recruit him for And when I look at what she was able to contribute, not only to my own growth and then Microsoft's growth. Uh, I'm so much, we we as a company are so much better off and I as an individual are so much better off. And I think those are the moments. I mean, the same thing happened when Steve asked me to go to Bing. I'd I'd just been promoted to run our business solutions. Um, And here was the opportunity to go run, uh, especially at a very dark time for us when we were losing share and a lot of
1: attrition. He didn't Uh, really give you the hard sell on that job though, did he?
0: He he said, hey, it'll be a great opportunity, but think wisely because if you fail at it, there is no parachute. Uh, but it was that honesty with which he sort of said it. Uh, and at the same time, what got me there was, I remember very distinctly, and I write about this in the book, which is I went that, um, you know, that night uh, to those offices where these engineers were sitting. And it was 9 o'clock or so in the night, and everybody was in. And like, I was thinking, wow. What are these guys doing? Uh, and I said, I have to join this team because I'm going to learn a lot more. And so that curiosity, that ability to constantly hit refresh, uh, I, think, uh, I think is important. You, you know, it's not that every one of these decisions is done hoping that they'll work out. It's real risk. But without that, you know, there's no payoff.
1: So hitting refresh on Microsoft, you've hit refresh. Has the new element on the page loaded yet, or <laughs> are we still waiting?
0: You know, to me, one of the things that Bill writes um, in the forward, I think, captures Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates right. <laughs> uh, writes, uh, it captures, I think, the essence of hit refresh and the logic behind it, which is, you know, you got to be smart so that the page load time is fast. That means you don't want to change everything. You want to change the things that matter the most to be able to really go after the new concepts. See, culture. And culture change is in support of, in our case, innovation. Uh, And in tech, there is no such thing as a constant. Uh, So the idea that you have to come up with new concepts which need new capability is what culture enables. So culture on its own is not just an agenda. But culture coupled with new innovation is what really our business is all about.
1: A lot of people are going to say, why write a book now? You know, some people write a book after they've retired or, or after you know, they've hit some obvious success point. You said this is not a memoir. You're not trying to say that the game is over and you've won. Is this kind of a cultural touchstone moment where you're trying to do this for Microsoft's employees and prospective employees and customers saying, hey, look, here's what we're trying to do?
0: I mean, you're right, because most business books are written, uh, you know, looking back either as grand successes or grand failures. Uh, One of the things that I felt uh, was as we are going through this process of transformative change amongst transformative technology change, uh, how do I reflect on that process? Uh, Mm. That's more this book. And this entire metaphor of even Hit Refresh is We as individuals are dealing with change all the time, and we're hitting refresh. We learn from it. The same is true for organizations, Mm -hmm. and same is true for our society. So while in the midst of it, so to speak, in the fog of war, what are the reflections? So this is clearly not some destination that has been uh, reached, but it's more a process of continuous renewal.
1: One of the challenges that you talk about in the book is privacy versus security. We've just had the CEO of Equifax, Resign in the wake of that huge data breach, 143 million accounts compromised. Maybe not on paper the worst privacy breach ever, but I would argue it is the worst in terms of the impact on consumers. Um, Is Microsoft paying enough attention to technology's potential dark side even as you look ahead to artificial intelligence and, and, and some of these other technologies to prevent the equivalent of an Equifax happening 10 years down the line in the AI era?
0: It's a very important question. There's no doubt that as every part of our life and every part of our economy increasingly is driven by software and is becoming digital, uh, cybersecurity is top of mind. Uh, in fact, if I look back, uh, when, with any new technology, there's always going to be uh, the dark side. After all, with the, the telegraph, there was wire fraud. Uh, We had to come up with both the laws as well as technology uh, to deal with it. And I think that same is going to be true with whether it's with AI or cybersecurity. To me at Microsoft, one of the things that we have to uh, really step up to, and this is something that even we started 15 years ago, is Mm. the core security of our products has got to be a top priority. We are, after all, the first responders. And so, therefore, really being on top of our game on a continuous basis. Because
1: it's often said of the Internet, oh, it wasn't built for security. If it had been built inherently secure, that would be better is machine learning and AI, the constructs that you're building, are they being built with security and the potential dark side in mind?
0: That's a a great point because one of the things that we, we sort of sometimes think is security is something that can be completely be built in. Clearly there is a way for us to secure the protocols, the data and so on. But one of the things that is so important for everyone to realize is that operational security posture that all of us have. It's kind of like, if somebody said this to me, you can't get fit by looking at others go to the gym. You have (laughs) to go to the gym. So what does that mean in the technology That means, in some sense, you have to really say, what's the uh, digital estate? What are the intrusions? What are the attacks? Am I able to detect them fast enough? Am I able to remediate for it fast enough? So the operational security posture is as important as, quote unquote, the locks you put in your front door. Are you watching? Uh, And in some sense, that's an intelligence game. So I'll give you an example. At Microsoft, for example, you're now using one of our cloud services. The fact that we see a billion-plus endpoints and what's happening at them in real time, we use the intelligence from that to secure our cloud. Hmm. Uh, That means anyone who's using Office 365 will not get these malicious things that may be propagating in email because of our ability to take data from one place and use it to secure everyone else. What
1: about businesses like Equifax? If they had been on your cloud, would you have any kind of early? Warning system that would have alerted them that uh, this vulnerability was being exploited, they were losing data?
0: You know, for, I, I can't sp- speak to the specifics uh, of Equifax and uh, their uh, state, but overall, I think the more we have the ability to take data that we see across our digital estates and all the good guys share that data. Uh, the better off we will be in keeping uh, anyone who's trying to attack. Uh, And that, I think, is something that I am a proponent of at the industry level.
1: It's been about 10 months since the LinkedIn acquisition officially closed, I believe, uh, $26 billion. Big buy. How long before we we look at LinkedIn and we see Office 365 completely baked in? We look at Office, we see LinkedIn, and, and there's more of that Uh, uh, mixing of the two platforms?
0: Yeah, I mean, in fact, first thing that I want us to sort of make sure we measure ourselves and the street should measure us is what's happening to LinkedIn's organic growth. Uh, We are very pleased uh, with how LinkedIn itself, post-acquisition, is continuing to accelerate. uh, And that's a first sign of a very healthy franchise. Then there are two obvious areas that we can really see the integrations. One, in fact, we launched this, in fact, just yesterday, was the Office 365 and LinkedIn coming together to help professionals uh, who use both those products. In fact, you could have gone to a conference, used the LinkedIn app to find all the other people who are at the conference uh, and then network with them. That was sort of a cool thing. And in Outlook, you can find now your LinkedIn contact. Somebody sends you mail, you find them there, you can see the files you exchanged. So that's fantastic to see. But another area where it's really a game changer is for us in the Dynamics area. We now have solutions which bring together the LinkedIn Sales Navigator with CRM or Dynamics 365 CRM, and that's a game changer for anybody who is in the B2B side of it. So we're very, very excited about the business application side. We're also excited about Office 365.
1: In the book, you talk about your own experience. Uh, coming to the U.S. as a 21-year-old, uh, being on this college campus, and then going to work for Microsoft. And in it, you talk also about how you transition from being this lone worker to getting married and, and being a family man. And you had a green card. This I didn't realize uh, about you. I'm going to read just a portion uh, from it. You had a green card and you say, you're, you're looking to get married to your wife, the H-1B enables spouses to come to the United States while their husbands and wives are working here. Such is the perverse logic of this immigration law. There was nothing I can do about it. Anu, your wife-to-be was my top, was my priority. And that made my decision a simple one. I went back to the U.S. Embassy in Delhi in June of 1994, passed the enormous lines of people hoping to get a visa, and told a clerk that I wanted to give back my green card and apply for an H-1B. He was dumbfounded. You gave up your green card because U.S. immigration law at the time said your wife would probably have to wait five years at least to come over. How does that inform the way you as the CEO of Microsoft look at this immigration debate that's happening in our country right now?
0: The first thing I would say, John, I'm a product of two amazing, unique American things. American technology that reached me where I was growing up helped me dream the dream, and then the enlightened American immigration policy that let me come here and live the dream. So when I think about it, only in America would a story like mine be even possible. So before we are critical about our immigration policy, the fact that the U.S. is the beacon of hope, and the attractor of talent from all over the world is something that we should hold as precious. That's where the criticism comes from, Mm -hmm. not in terms of uh, anything else. Having said that, I think we can have an immigration policy that is enlightened, which is for our own competitiveness. Right? It's not about uh, doing this out of anything else other than to say, let us be the place which attracts the best talent so that that best talent can come contribute to our economy. But it's not just about skilled immigration. We also need to stand up for being the last place of hope for, most pe- for people who need it the most. That's what, again, drives America's uniqueness, and we should never, never give it up.
1: Microsoft's immigration lawyer, or an immigration lawyer at Microsoft was the one who suggested to you That's that correct. maybe you needed to shift from a green card to an H-1B to do that. Not everybody has that kind of expert advice in place and some would argue our immigration system hasn't been enlightened for a long time, if ever. So how do we get there? How does Microsoft help us get there?
0: I mean, I think a, a comprehensive immigration reform uh, that, again, speaks to the, our interests as a nation, what makes us stronger, what makes us more competitive, I think is much needed. Uh, some of the things, the, the, the idea that you have to give up your green card to get an H-1B uh, is, in, in retrospect, silly. Uh, and so, therefore, let us, in fact, take the reform... Uh, And we know that it works for us,
1: both our security, but as well as our competitiveness. Um, Let's say you're leading a great power with a proud legacy of dominance, but you see that trust is breaking down in the culture, and the infighting is keeping meaningful work from getting done. Could be talking about Microsoft, could be talking about the United States right now under President Trump. Can America hit refresh? How?
0: I think America and what it has done in the 200 plus years is a society that has hit refresh constantly. If anything, we can learn from our own history is our ability to deal with change and really come up with the change that is needed broad spectrum. Not only change that is needed in technology, but change that is needed in society so that we can be the country that in fact creates the most new innovation creates the most new opportunity. One of the Mm. things that I I admire the most about our country is no other society in human history has created so much opportunity for so many people. Uh, We call this blue-collar aristocracy. It didn't exist in human history until it was found in the United States. That's something that's precious, and it only happened because we were able to hit refresh.
1: Microsoft is a sponsor of the NFL, your Surface uh, tablets and computers are all around the field being used more and more. Um, You were also on the president's tech council until all of those were dissolved. There's a big controversy this week involving the president and the NFL. What would you say to him if you still had that seat at the table? Look, for me, I think respecting all points of view, in this
0: case, the players, the fans, and making sure that we're doing everything possible to bring about more cohesion Understanding where the other person is coming from, I think, is the need of the hour in all of us. Uh, So the more we can have a rich dialogue, it doesn't mean we have to agree on everything all the time, but let's have a rich dialogue, let's have that empathy for the other person's point of view, let us respect the point of view of other people. That's, I think, what has made America what it is today, and let
1: us make sure we don't trade that off. As you looked at what Surface has done with this NFL relationship. Uh, Has it worked? Uh, Is the NFL effective? in in its uh, platform for a technology company, and is it becoming more effective or less so?
0: Look, to me, you know, I learned football when I turned 21 and came to the United States. (laughs) It was cricket Uh, before that, right? It was cricket before. It's an amazing sport. It's an amazing brand, Uh, and for sure, our association uh, with Surface and Xbox and many other technologies with the NFL has been uh, fantastic, and it's something that we value a lot, and I know the NFL values a lot. We've even learned a lot what does it mean to build technology that can withstand the sidelines of NFL. So we're very proud to be associated with it.
1: I want to ask finally about uh, artificial intelligence. You've got this AI and research and development group that's grown from 5,000 people to 8,000 people just in the past year. It's now more than 5% of Microsoft's headcount. How do you do that and look to the future without falling into that old Xerox Park trap of having all these researchers in a group and not being able to get innovative products out the door front?
0: That's a great question, John. In some sense, that's the existential question for us. Uh, 43 years after our formation, one of the things that we have realized is whatever novel new concept you've come up with ultimately will stop being novel. You will need to come up with the next thing in order to come up with the next thing, you perhaps have to even build new capability. Like AI is something that we've always had, but we are in fact have to be now building even new types of AI. Uh, And to do that, you need a culture that fosters that capability building long before, quite frankly, even the new concept is clear. So one of the great benefits is the long-term approach Microsoft has taken towards AI. I mean, it was in, in 1995 when Bill said, you know, the speech recognition thing is going to be important. Let's get started, right? We didn't turn around uh, the other, you know, just yesterday to start uh, working on speech synthesis or speech recognition that ability to take a long-term approach, but then seizing these market opportunities when they arrive. And it's not that you'll perfectly time them, because you can't, but you've got to be able to build capability and have a culture that allows you to build the capability so that you can seize these opportunities. And the
1: partnerships you've been doing lately, I mean, Cortana, Microsoft, Speech Agent, talking uh, to Alexa with Jeff Bezos over there at Amazon, isn't that risky? I mean look, all
0: partnerships can be viewed as or all, you know, in relationships can be viewed as zero sum or as market expansive. Uh, One of the first things that, at least I look at, is what can we do? I mean, we're in such early nascent days of these voice-first devices. There are probably, you know, what, five, ten million of devices, so so it's just minuscule. I think what is most important for us is to start making it a daily habit. This ambient computing, whether it's computer vision or speech-driven, I think is going to be big. Uh, And more importantly, the strength that we have uh, is around productivity and communications and Things that professionals need, even in a voice-first world. Uh, just like how we took our Office 365 apps and put it on iOS and Android, we want to make sure that our voice-first applications are also available on all platforms. So that's the
1: fundamental construct behind it. My thanks to Satya Nadella. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. There you'll see video from these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook or Periscope and search for John Fort, and you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.